you'll please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians and the first chapter as we continue in this little section. Please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning as we start in verse 11. And read down through um, 19. Let's hear the word of the Lord. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's go to prayer. I would ask you to pray for me as I preach this text. Pray for yourselves as you sit under the proclamation of God's word. And this morning, after a time of brief prayer, I will lead us. Let's pray. God and Father, I come into your presence this morning in humility, recognizing my own failings and my own sin, recognizing, Heavenly Father, my unfaithfulness on too many occasions, and confessing, O God, my desperate need for you this morning as I bring forth this word to your people. I would ask you to be with the congregation that you would take away any distractions they may have in their lives, any hardness of heart that might be there, any doubts that might be there, that you would grant repentance. Oh, God, hear us, we ask. Bless this word to us, that we may become more like Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. This past Lord's Day, I focused primarily on the first portion of this, verses um, really 16 and 17. We want to continue on in this uh, this morning. We talked about the felt needs that people have this last week. Felt needs being uh, such as those that are hurtful, those that cause us pain, those that cause us misery. And we'd mentioned those in our own congregation who are suffering from things in their life such as these felt needs. But the greatest needs that we have according to what the Bible teaches are not the felt needs at all, not physical needs really. The greatest needs that we have, according to what the Bible teaches us and according to what Paul prays here, is that we may grow in an understanding of who Christ is, of who God is, and what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul prays this for these Ephesian Christians. And we recognize that there's always, always the need for growth 
in grace. Let me ask you a question. Would God have you know more of Christ today than you did 10 years ago? And the answer is yes, he would. Would God have you be more like Christ today than you were 10 years ago? And the answer is yes, he would. The question is this. What are you doing so far as your own responsibility to see to it that you become more like Jesus Christ? Is it this idea of let go and God's going to somehow take over and you're just automatically going to coast into glory and coast into sanctification? The answer to that is that silliness. It's not going to happen. Paul recognizes here the need for us to grow in grace and the need for us to have the help of Christ in our life. God's help in our life if we would become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is that through wisdom and a revelation of God's knowledge in our lives that we increase in our hope for glory. Do you keep heaven before you very often? The reality of uh, heaven. You know, I um, think more and more of glory, more and more of heaven. I think it's a healthy thing for us to do. But do we do it often enough? Do we really? Has it really grasped us that we have an inheritance that is unfading and perishable forever in glory in heaven? Or do we meditate upon that as we should? Well, Paul gives us a way here that we can grow in our knowledge and experience of hope. We'll see this this morning. Since a deeper knowledge of God is the gateway to understanding more of the Christian's abiding hope, again, Since a deeper knowledge of God is the gateway to understanding more of the hope we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we are to seek to get to know God more and more each day. The three points from last week, we just looked at the first one this past Lord's Day. Prayer for spiritual growth is offered to the God who is a loving Heavenly Father to us. Uh, Prayer for spiritual growth are offered to God for an increase of understanding. And then finally, prayer for spiritual growth is offered with a hope of growing in our understanding of eternity. First thing, very briefly then, to cover from last week, uh, prayers for spiritual growth are offered to the God who is our Father. And we said this, it is essential, if you're going to be a Christian, that you grasp the reality of the Incarnation, that Christ was truly and fully God, and Christ was truly and fully man at the same time. And so we read in the Gospels, Matthew 1, 18 through 23. Now, the birth of Jesus took place like this. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And we read over in Luke and the uh, other birth narrative the same thing, uh, that Christ was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And Matthew particularly takes effort to point out the fulfillment of Scripture in the pregnancy of Mary, in the birth of Christ, even to the place where he was born. He says again and again in the opening of his book, this happened in order that what the prophet said might be fulfilled, might be fulfilled, might be fulfilled. And so the reality of the incarnation then is something that we must embrace, otherwise you're not a Christian. Because if you don't believe in the reality of the incarnation, then you're denying who Christ is. You're denying his very person because he was truly God and he was truly man. And I think I told you last week, maybe I can't really recall if I did or not. The way that we really see the the divinity in Jesus, many different ways, but one particularly. 
I mean, others raised people from the dead. Paul raised Eutychus from the dead. Other people gave sight to the blind. The only thing that Jesus did that no one else could do is say to somebody, your sins are forgiven. Nobody else can do that. And you remember the scene. The man was crippled. The man was not able to walk. Uh, he says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees begin to grumble. Who is this guy think he is? Nobody can forgive sins but God. You said, okay, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to take up your mat and walk? Well, obviously the latter. Because the latter is observable. So he says, in order that you may know the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, I tell you, take your mat and walk. So Christ had the authority to forgive sins. He was truly and indeed God in the flesh. And we see his humanity again in so many different ways and ultimately in his death. Well, it is then that these things that are difficult for us to grasp, the incarnation, uh, how is it that Christ can be fully God and fully man at the same time? We said this, that it's not, this Christianity is not natural, it's supernatural. It is the working of God. And what a wonder it is, is it not, that finite creatures who are sinful creatures can grasp as much as we can about the reality of the person work of the Creator. I remember when I was talking to someone at seminary so many years ago, uh, about the challenges of man's free agency and election and evangelism, all of these different things. And I said to him this, you know, the wonder of it is that we can understand as much of God as we do. Because he's infinite, we're finite, he's holy, we're not. And by his grace, we can grasp uh, as much of God as we can. And that's really the, the great testimony of God's grace for us in this kind of story. Well, the second thing, now we come to this is that prayer for spiritual growth is offered with an anticipation of sanctification. So again, I ask you, would you desire, we said, ask, would God desire you to be more like Christ? Would God desire you to grow in grace? The answer was yes. Well, would you desire that? Do you have that desire in your life that you would say, I long to be more like Jesus every day? I long to know him more deeply. I long to be with him more, more faithfully. I long to read his word with more faith, uh, faithfulness. All of these things. Well, the proof of the test is there. Do you seek out God? Do you seek to grow in grace in image, the image of the Lord Jesus Christ? The Bible places, places a great deal of emphasis on knowledge. How did God reveal himself to us? Well, different ways in the Old Testament. In these last days, according to the book of Hebrews, he's revealed himself to us in his son. But he's given us a book. The Bible. You remember what Paul says about the Bible. All Scripture is theopneustos. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. The man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. What do we do with the book? We read it. Or we hear it read. And in the church, not only do we hear it read, we also hear it preached. And the Bible is this. The Bible is the most practical book ever written. Two things we learn from it, at least. One thing is, we learn how to be saved. The message of salvation comes to us from the Scriptures. The second thing is, we learn how to live a life that's pleasing to God. So these two valuable instructions and lessons are offered to us in the Scriptures. And so Paul here, recognizing that after these people are converted, it's just the first step in our spiritual journey. When do we quit growing? When we die. Or when Jesus comes back, that's when we quit growing. 
Because in heaven, we are truly and completely sanctified souls, as it says in the book of Hebrews, the souls of men made perfect. But until that time, we have a responsibility as we enter into Christ's school for higher learning. Everybody's a student. Everybody that's a Christian is a student. You may not think of it like that in those terms. When Paul prays this here, you have to understand that we have a responsibility to learn. And that we are students of the Scriptures. He says here, for this reason I have not, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking to Christians. He's not urging them to faith. They are already believers. What he's urging them to is an increase of knowledge in God. It's very clear in the text. Uh, uh, according to the riches of his grace, that he would strengthen you with power through his spirit so that Christ would dwell in your hearts. I'm sorry, I was going to read that in a minute. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called. The eyes of our hearts enlightened, a greater increase of understanding of the things of God and of the gospel. Well, have we then made progress in our relationship with Jesus over the past year? Here's the creme de la creme of questions. Do you know more? Do you know Jesus more deeply today than you did this time last year? You should. And if you don't, you know whose fault it is. It's yours. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. That's the promise of the Bible. And I recognize that we deal with things every day that are not pleasant, things that are challenges to us. Some people deal with things that are much more challenging than others, but we all live our lives day in and day out in a fallen world. But when we get into the thick of difficulty, we seek out Jesus. We seek out Christ. And that's what we are called to do, because Paul does not say here, so long as things are going well, I hope it is that you learn more of God. I hope it is that you know more of Christ. But I understand if that doesn't happen when you're suffering. No, in the midst of our suffering, we seek out the face of the Lord Jesus Christ even all the more. And we do not want to live our lives in a spiritual wasteland. One thing, if you read the Psalms, David again and again uh, expresses his struggles with trusting and understanding God's ways. As he says here, why are you so far from my groanings? You get the image there that here is David and he's seeking God's face and he's pleading for God's help and assistance. And yet it seems like that God is not listening to him. A back, a very similar thing. Lord, why don't you pay attention and do something? Why don't you take note? You see all the injustice here. You see how the wicked are progressing and the righteous are suffering. Uh, do something. And that's when God says, I'm going to. Now, be assured, I'm going to. I'm going to bring an end to Israel as it is now and take them away to captivity. So God then is always at work. He's always paying attention. He's always involved. And we have to live our lives by seeking his face, even as Habakkuk did. So it's not when things are pleasant and good, you see, that we are able to praise God and able to seek God out. We should do that when things are not good as well. And not to become embittered toward God, which is the habit of some. We do not want to be on God's bad side. Because if you're in a situation and you're not having this desire to grow in knowledge and to grow in the image of Jesus, uh, then the 
outworking of that naturally is to drift away from the God of your salvation. And instead of becoming more like Christ, becoming less like Christ. So again, Paul offers up this prayer here, recognizing the necessity that we have in our lives for God's help. And so after our conversion, the process of growth begins. Day by day, moment by moment, we grow in grace or we don't. Now, Paul's prayer here necessitates and makes us see quite readily the need for the help of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, if we would grow in the grace of Jesus, all growth occurs in the life of the Christian as a result of the gracious aid of God's Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter how smart you may be. It doesn't matter your pedigree of Reformed thinking or history of lineage of Reformed and being involved in the Reformed church and whatnot. Uh, it doesn't really uh, matter so much how much you give to Scripture reading unless it is that God is blessing your efforts. And he does that when we ask him to bless our efforts. He does that when we come before him and we pray to God to help us as we go and read the Scriptures. We would pray, oh God, my Father, holy God, please help me to understand this text. Please bring it to bear upon my life because I know I need to change. I know I need to be more like Christ. Would you help me understand that, Holy Spirit, Almighty God, give me grace that I might comprehend what is being taught here and I might incorporate it into my life? As Paul prays this for the people here who are in Ephesus. Again, all growth occurs as a result of God's gracious aid of his spirit. And if you look at Isaiah 11 and verse 2, listen to this. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Hear it again. Isaiah 11, verse 2. 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. This is a reference to Jesus. This is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you notice the Spirit of God in his life working, that of wisdom, counsel, and knowledge. If Jesus needed the help of the Holy Spirit, how much more do we need the help of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Christ had no sin. We, on the other hand, are quite sinful people. Jesus had a very unique relationship with God, much deeper than ours, and yet we see him praying. We see him praying throughout the watches of the night. We see his dependence upon the Spirit of God. And it is, as Paul mentions here, wisdom resides in the Spirit of the living God. And don't confuse wisdom with knowledge. There are a lot of smart people that know all kind of things that simply are not wise. What does it teach us in the book of Proverbs? The beginning of uh, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, a recognition of God, his existence. That's the beginning of true wisdom. And so it is not simply uh, in uh, the uh, head full of understanding of the world, but rather it is a head full of understanding of the gospel. That's true wisdom. 
And so we need to turn to the Spirit of God, and we need to look to His um, the Spirit of God for help in our lives if we would grow to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. In Colossians 2, 1 through 3, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have had for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts might be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the, uh, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom begins with knowing who Christ is. Wisdom begins with comprehending the gospel. And if we ignore that, then we are not going to be those who are wise, but rather fools. Paul also here in this text prays for wisdom and the revelation in the knowledge of him. Again, an increase in understanding of who God is. A result of that is that your eyes have been enlightened. By nature, we are blind to the things of Christ. By nature, we are blind to the things of God. Well, here, our eyes have been enlightened, our understanding been touched. I'm going to read this to you. It's not too terribly lengthy. The eye is the instrument by which we see, and in like manner, the understanding is that by which we perceive truth. Okay? The understanding is that by which we perceive truth. So Paul says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may be able to know what is the hope which you have been called and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The idea is that Paul does not only wish their hearts to be right, but he wished their understanding to be right. Also, religion has much to do in enlightening the mind. Indeed, its effect there is not less striking and decisive than it is on the heart. The understanding has been blinded by sin. The views which people entertain of themselves and of God are narrow and wrong. This is the natural man. The understanding is enfeebled and perverted by the practice of sin. It is limited in its operation by the necessity of the case and by the impossibility of fully comprehending the great truths which pertain to the divine administration. One of the first effects of true religion is on our understanding. How does the gospel come to us? It appeals to our mind. Tell us who Jesus is. Tell us what he's done. What what must we do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Faith is an act of the intellect. And I understand it's my grace that we come to faith, but it is that we have to believe. It it is essential for us to believe the gospel. And that is an exercise of the intellect. We believe. We hear it and we believe by God's grace. Um, Limited in its operation by the necessity of the case and by the impossibility of fully comprehending the great truths which pertain to the divine administration. Again, one of the first effects of true religion is on the understanding. It enlarges its view of truth, gives it a more exalted conception of God, corrects its errors, raises it up toward the great fountain of love. And nowhere is the effect of true religion more apparent than on shedding light on the intellect of the world and restoring weak and perverted minds to a just view. Of God's truth. So Paul rightly prays here, may your understanding be expanded. Paul, John Calvin says this, Paul asks that these Christians might be granted a moral temperament, uh, that spiritual deposition, disposition by which uh, they would be able to, dis, uh, able to dis, receive tr- uh, divine truth and appropriate it into their lives. Terribly, terribly misread that. Paul asked that these Christians might be granted the moral temper 
that spiritual disposition by which they would be able to receive divine truth and appropriate it into their lives. That is Paul's prayer for them. So you can go up to your elder and say, have you prayed for me that I might grow in grace, that I might grow in my understanding of the gospel? Have you prayed for me? You can go to your pastor. Have you prayed for me lately that I might grow in grace and grow in knowledge and understanding, that I might become more like Christ and I might more greatly comprehend the inheritance that is mine, the hope that is mine in Christ Jesus? There is a bombardment every single day that we live to say it and basically says to us, why are you trusting the gospel? Why are you trusting God? Why are you trusting Christ? Why? Look at your life. Look at the condition of your hearts. Look at the things you're facing. Why in the world are you giving yourself to this business of Christianity? And so we're bombarded again and again, day by day, as Satan who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour never gives up. And I've said it before, I'll say it again, he's got a lot to work with in our hearts. A whole lot to work with in us. That we, at times, are quite ready to surrender ourselves to temptation. Here calling to question the very goodness of God when we go through trials in our lives. So again, it is this desperate need for us to grow in grace that we cannot do on our own. Well, the last thing is this prayer culminates uh, in a deeper understanding of the inheritance that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul puts it here, and that you may know what the, uh, the hope to which he has called you or the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints, the hope to which he has called you. In verse 14, he talks about this inheritance being guaranteed by the presence of the Spirit with us, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. In verse 18, he really kind of begins to describe what that hope is, and he says that it is a glorious inheritance in the saints. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, what great things God has in store for those who love him. I think that was a memory verse. It certainly should be uh, one that we should uh, bring to bear and uh, embrace. Well, uh, how do we get a slight glimpse of this inheritance that is ours and a hope, the certainty of it that is ours, that is yet to be experienced? Well, I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians. Chapter 15, this is the great chapter on the resurrection. When you lose somebody, read this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter, read it. And it is comforting to your soul. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, not as the imperishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you, uh, a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In other words, we're not all going to die when Christ comes back again. There will be people alive on the earth. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this imperishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass this uh, saying that is written, 
Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, because these things are true, because of the reality of being raised to an inheritance, because of the reality of your resurrection, and because of the reality of Christ coming back again, he says here, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labors in the Lord is not in vain. Because of the reality of Christ's work and what he's accomplished for us on the cross of Calvary by his life and death and resurrection, because of the guarantee of his coming again, because of the guarantee of you being brought out of the grave, By the power of God, he says, continue to stand firm. Continue to stand in your faith, not giving in to the temptations, not giving in to a desire to be free from the burdens that are placed upon you by the gospel itself. As God calls us again and again to faithfulness. Oh, and there we grow weary of God's demands upon us. And just to be free, we would think. And yet there is no freedom in denying the gospel at all, but rather captivity to sin and condemnation. He says, be steadfast, be immovable, no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're dealing with, no matter how bleak the world may seem to you at some time. Be steadfast, be immovable, knowing that your labors are not in vain. I've heard of missionaries that have gone off to mission fields and they seem to have accomplished nothing. Nothing was accomplished. Some have died on the mission field, seeing no benefit whatsoever of their labors. And yet this truth has to ring in their ears and hearts when they are there working. Be steadfast. Be immovable. As you understand, your labors are not in vain. God is going to notice. And he will bless you. There was a song in the 70s or late 60s. I can't remember which it was. It was a group called the Grassroots. Uh, it's kind of a manufactured group, but uh, they had some pretty good music. There's a song called Live for Today. Sha-la-la-la, live for today. Well, as Christians, we live for today to glorify God, but we live with an eye to the future as we anticipate an inheritance that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ preserved for you. And so glorious it will be, we can't begin to comprehend exactly how grand it will be. For those who live their lives seeking after the Lord Jesus Christ, there is in the midst of their trials comfort. There is in the midst of sickness encouragement. There is in the midst of loss hope. Because of our great God and the great work he's done for us in Jesus. This evening and this morning as we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded of the certainty of our redemption. As Christ gave this meal to his church as a guarantee of redemption accomplished and applied. So as we are here this morning, we are here looking forward to the revelation of our inheritance in Jesus. And nothing is going to stop that. Let's pray.